This is the Branches Podcast. We try to keep it simple in this family of faith. Love God and love people. Let's not make it harder than Jesus intended. If you'd like to know more about our community of faith, you can visit us at www.branchesoc.com. For those of you that are new or feel new or are a new face here, my name is Ryan. I am, um, I am one of you. I'm of no particular importance here at Branches other than part of this community at Branches that is honored to be able to be a part of what it is that we do together, shoulder to shoulder, pursuing after Christ and um, learning how to do this in community. And so what I've said often anytime that I'm speaking here is that I have no interest in transacting in the gospel as if that I have something that you need and it's my position to give you something that you need. I do believe strongly in discipleship and in teaching. But I'm trying to level this playing field within the church that there is this monologuical model of someone who is, who is giving you what you need, but in turn saying, can we do this together and let us together highlight some of these truths around worship and see what it spurs in our daily conversations from here on out and forward and throughout the rest of the week. We've been in this series of spiritual disciplines, which is like, I still get that kind of... Um, maybe even literal groan, right? Like, spiritual disciplines. It's so hard, the idea of just the term discipline. And we're, we've talked about prayer. We've talked about solitude. We've talked about the way that you intend, attend to this kind of interior world of your life that is meant to travel you somewhere. It's meant to take you along a journey towards Christ's likeness. It's meant to be a series that it, it means that the rest of your waking hours, you have the opportunity to find yourself in a position to encounter Jesus. I guess that's the way I would say it. What are we doing to allow ourselves to be in a position to encounter the Lord? I closed a couple of Sundays ago with a statement that I borrowed, and I don't even remember from whom. It's old. It might be like Blaise Pascal or somebody that's much smarter than I am that said that the man with an argument is not superior to the man with an encounter. And so what he meant by that is that we are on the shoulders in the church of men and women who testify to encountering the risen Savior. We don't stand on the shoulders of an argument or on a rational truth. I'm not saying that the, the, the church is irrational in some sense or that this gospel is irrational. What I'm saying is we stand on the shoulders of those who've encountered Jesus. Even Paul himself, kind of the, the, kind of the superman Paul, of the apostles, reoriented the entirety of his life upon the encounter he had with Jesus. And I can only imagine him going to his friends that were kind of dyed-in-the-wool Pharisees, and he'd given his life, he had risked his life, he had given his entire being to a way of being that he's asking them to get his perspective on, I'm reorienting all of that because I encountered Jesus. I encountered him. And Jesus didn't come and confront Paul with a sense of, I am giving you a new truth. Though he did, but what he did is encounter him. And so when we talk about worship, what we're really talking about is an encounter. And I said many weeks ago that uh, there was a time I was slotted to speak, and it was going to be on worship, and it felt like um, we're kind of literally gathering in a parking lot. And it feels like that I'm a swim instructor, and I'm asking people to come to the parking lot and talk about swimming. 
and there is no pool, and there's no water, and we just sit around, and we talk about, we talk about swimming, when the truth of it is that um, I would much rather be a church that is so busy embodying our life and faith, doing the thing, swimming, and um, not fully understanding it, than fully understanding something that we never do. I just don't want to be a part of a church that fully understands something, or at least is under the impression that we understand something that we just have a hard time fully embracing in our actual lives. So, did anyone get out their phone when I asked the question, what percentage of your waking hours do you spend in worship and start doing some math? I even heard some people like, I don't know the math, or doing the mental math. I'm like, oh, I have seven hours night's sleep, and I can wake up an hour, and then I have this. Um, I did a little bit of the math. Um, not for you. I did it for me. Um, do you, what percentage do you think, um, in the term that we commonly understand of worship as like this corporate worship, what we're doing here, what percentage of my week of waking hours is that? Any guesses? 100%. The answer is 100%. Correct. It's 100% for me. What was it for you? Just kidding. It's not. Yeah, good, Matt, you're on. It's probably, it's less than 1%. Less than 1%. That was right. Sounds right. Yeah. For me, when I did the math, it's less than 1% of my waking hours is spent in corporate worship. Musical corporate worship, what we do here. So that starts to like beg the question, what is worship if our lives are, um, if practically every other category of our lives is of greater proportion in my life than that which I even do here in corporate worship, possibly is there some reorienting of our perspective, my perspective, our priorities, my priorities around what, why, how, and what this looks like. And worship is in the spiritual disciplines category, but it's altogether unique and separate. And the reason why it's altogether unique and separate is we go through these disciplines of solitude, communion with the Lord, prayer, time with Jesus, and in many ways it feels a little bit like a life hack. We live in this world of like scrolling Instagram and everyone's got their life hack of what it is that you need to do to make your life better. And it feels like the church is a Sunday morning, we just talk about spiritual life hacks and this is like stuff you need to do to life hack your spiritual life. But the truth is, is that worship is not a means to something. It just isn't. It isn't a hack. It isn't something that gets you somewhere. It isn't, it isn't a road or a journey towards something. It is the end result of something that's done. It is the arrival. It is not the destination or the journey. We don't worship so that, fill in the blank. We just don't. We worship because, and the big question is, what is that fill in the blank? What is that that we worship because of? So I want to take us on a, a little bit of a path, as briefly as I possibly can, on the trajectory of worship as it's existed since the early church began. And by that, I even mean prior to the Acts movement and prior to Jesus, even in the inception of the people of Israel and God's relationship with humanity, there was a form of worship that existed in some form and some fashion, right? And the Old Testament has um, a lot to say about worship. There's a couple main words that's used. And the New Testament is um, staggeringly silent on it. In fact, there are no gatherings in the New Testament called worship services in the Scriptures. It doesn't exist. The concept of what we do at branches on Sundays, as described in 
the epistles, the letters that the apostles wrote to the church in James, John, and Hebrews, and any of these, the idea of um, what we may have in our mind of kind of group corporate worship and singing is all but absent, not entirely, but all but silent. It's like it's been boycotted in the New Testament. It doesn't exist. 1 Corinthians does talk about the whole church gathering together. Acts talks about attending the temple, breaking bread in their homes. It talks about, like, the community. Hebrews talks about not neglecting to meet one another in 1025. There's a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of passages. But what is becoming of the word worship that's been used for millennia prior to that around what worship was? So I want to start with this Revelation 22.9 passage as the end, not the beginning. John is being confronted with an angel. It's his apocalyptic vision as he's in prison on the Isle of Patmos, and he's writing what he's encountering. And here, as he's saying, but he said to me, John speaking now, speaking of an angel, don't do that. The what? What does he want him not to do? The word used there is worship. That's what he's implying. Don't do that. Don't bow at my feet, the angel says. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all those who keep the words of his scroll. Worship God. He's reorienting even John's perspective of don't worship nothing. Don't worship something else. Don't worship me. Worship God. There's this positive command, and it's one of the few, actually, in the New Testament. So let's take a tour, a brief tour, but let's take a tour from the Old Testament and the New Testament about what worship was, became, and is now. And then maybe it will be a lot. I was hearing some things from the, from the groups that was like, yes, okay, cool. There's some people that are right in line with what we're talking about this morning, which is awesome. The Old Testament main use of the word is hishtanavaha a hard one to say. It's a mouthful. And it actually is connotating to bow down. It totally is, connect, is connected to physical posture. It has everything to do with what you're physically doing. And it's used 171 times. It's all throughout the Old Testament because the Old Testament was a geographically centralized, nationalistically centralized, localized, like ritualistic process of the temple. And worship was confined within that. The intersection of heaven and earth was the temple. Where God met with humanity was the temple. So the sense of heaven meeting earth was localized, was geographically specific, was confined within liturgy and form. It had a very particular form. If you think of any of the passages talking about the temple, it is staggering how particular it is with regards to how it was set up. To the to the centimeter and measurement of the walls and diameters and to the spaces within the temple, to the process that they went through within their worship, all of that was very, very particular. The form was very particular. In the Greek, that gets translated to proskuneu. You might be hearing how it relates to prostrate or the idea of bowing down. It has everything to do with, again, with posture, and that occurs all throughout. There's also a Greek Old Testament. Much of that's been translated in Greek. That becomes proskuneu. The Greek New Testament also includes that word 26 times, but it never is associated with what we just did 15 minutes ago in corporate worship. It isn't used there at all. It's absent entirely. But it is used It's used once by Paul in 1 Corinthians where he's talking about kind of strange passage on prophecy. In Hebrews, there are only Old Testament quotations. 
talking about what the worship was and what it's not anymore. So why are the letters written to church that is designed to help the church be what it ought to be in this age, in this time, why is it almost totally devoid of the word worship in the form that it's known for 2,000 years prior to that? Why? Why is that? I'm venturing a guess, but my guess is, is because it just doesn't work anymore. It isn't defining what worship is. It just doesn't do justice. It doesn't work. And how I get to that is by looking at Jesus. He had much to say about this. If you think through what's happened, again, with the intersection of heaven and earth being the temple and that being a very localized, institutionalized, centralized, ritualized, nationalized, because it was nationalized within Israel, it was very particular. And you move to Jesus, who's now getting people angry, first and foremost, because he starts talking about the temple. Anybody remember what he had to say about the temple? First, he starts calling himself the temple. He's going to destroy it, raise it up again. That gets people angry, right? For obvious reasons. We all like to think that we would be the people that wouldn't be angry because we would see through that. You would be angry. I would be angry. If you were a Jewish Israelite walking through the festival periods and Jesus enters in and talks about how he's going to wreck this thing that is the intersection of heaven and earth and that he's going to tear it down and raise it up again, we would have been angry. We just would have been. We'd have been right there with him. At least I would have been. And he says something greater than the temple is here. What Jesus mentioned. And he kind of backs that up. He goes into the temple in Mark eleven seventeen, saying, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. He's starting to de-ritualize. He's starting to take the outward expression of what they knew of worship, and he's starting to make it an interior, inward expression. He's starting to make it hidden almost, a house of prayer. He goes on to talk about prayer uh, of those that are making loud and buoyant gestures in prayer, maybe wailing and having these opulent displays of prayer. And he's talking about how it's not, it ain't that. Don't do that. You've got to hide in your closet and go away and find a way to commune with God that is devoid of your form that you understood. The outward expression of worship, Jesus is changing. John 2.9, he goes on to saying, destroy the temple and I'll raise it up. And that starts the domino of now people are angry at him. And this is the process that starts him to be murdered. This is the beginning of his murdering. is because he starts to throw a wrench in the gears of the outward form of worship. And then you find some of his seminal teaching of Jesus on worship when he's starting to fully deinstitutionalize, denationalize, decentralize, deritualize worship in what you do, when he's wandering and walking along without his disciples in John 4, 20 to 24. You can pull that one up, Bode. Fascinating portrait of Jesus wandering along. He meets a woman at a well. He asks for a drink. Are you going to get me a drink? And she's like, I don't, you don't have a bucket. And he's like, the water that I have kind of twists it. He's like, 
you will never be thirsty again with this water. And she says, I'll have some of that water, give it to me. This is what's all happening prior to this passage. Weird conversation about water and drinking. And then she tries to uh, change the subject on Jesus. Because now Jesus hits her with something kind of heavy and pretty random. Where he lets her know, I know all about you. You've been married a bunch before. The man you're with now is not your husband. Calls her out on some taboo, very taboo things within life. And I would imagine her response eternally is the oh crap moment. Who is this guy? And let's see if I can't throw him a curveball. So she does. She gets into the weeds on worship. It's super weird. Has nothing to do with what they were talking about. So she chimes in. John 4, 20-24. This is her speaking. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So now she's talking about the debate over form, over the outward expression of worship. It was, I guess, already happening. There was already a debate happening. What does it look like? Where is the intersection of God and man? Where is that? Where do we worship? What does it look like? What do we do? And Jesus responds. Woman, Jesus replied. The hour is coming and is now here where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Yeah, sorry, that was the previous one. I don't know if she was satisfied with that answer or understood. How would you respond to that if your whole world had still been living in this process of I meet God in the intersection of God and humanity in the temple? And what worship looked like was an outward expression of a ritualistic form that took place with a very particular set of processes. And he's starting to fully decentralize this. He doesn't come right out and say neither, but that's what he's saying. He's saying neither. I'm not going to fall for the trap. It's neither. He answers with the confusing, there will be a time, the time's now, where worship's going to be in spirit and truth. And what God seeks is people are truly worshiping in spirit and in truth. Sets the assumption that it's neither, and what you're talking about in the hills or in the temple, I'm saying it's neither of those. And I'm saying the Lord seeks something that's different, altogether different than that. So we move on through Jesus' ministry, deinstitutionalizing, and we get to Matthew 15, 8 and 9. And he's still traveling through his earthly ministry and confronting the outward form of worship. He's been in the temple, and he's attacking that outward expression of worship and making it an inward expression of worship. He meets the woman at the well. She's talking about the outward form of worship, and he goes to the inward form of worship. He comes now in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, and he's addressing worship that's happening the outward form. And he says, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are are merely human rules. He's seeing the outward expression, and what he's saying is, "I I am concerned of the internal essence of worship, not the outward form. You could say he's answering what worship isn't. 
You can do as many things as you want, go to as many church services. You can do as many external forms of worship, and it may be in vain. That's possible. What he's saying is that's possible. It's possible to worship in vain, to go through the motions, and Jesus would say it's in vain. He's saying all true worship is in essence a matter of the heart. It's more than that, but not less. Say it that way. All true worship is a matter of the heart. It is always more than that, never less. And what he's showing and seeing here is the outward expression of worship is vanity devoid of the interior world that you attend to. When they talk about your heart, of what it, of what it is. The outward form, Jesus testifies to some of the reason why those words, proskuneu, hishtavahana, the, the Greek and Hebrew words for worship, why are they boycotted in the letters to the church in ways to talk about the outward and external form of worship? Why? Because Jesus did that. Jesus is saying it's not about that. It is that, but so much more. It is always about a matter of the internal expression, this, this internal garden that we tend to with these spiritual disciplines about communing with the Lord. So it becomes a lot harder to go through the motions in worship and feel like we're doing it right. And I hate that expression, are we doing it right, doing worship right? Because it's just not a test. And I was talking to Nancy, went for a long walk on the beach. And even like Tyler this morning, as we were talking about art and some of the ways in beauty, having a discussion around like, um, if somebody said, do you love Nancy? And they asked me that, even if it was a stranger, I would say, yes, of course, of course I do. How do you know? I know because I know. And I said, yeah, but how do you know? I said, well, I know because I know. And then they'd be like, well, I don't believe you prove it. I said, I can. I can prove it. And all the ways that I would describe proving why I love Nancy would have everything to do with what I do, right? Because I, I, I live sacrificially in some sense for her because her priorities get placed over mine, ideally because there's a sense of sacrificial love, because we are aligning ourselves in heart and mind and spirit, because we have unified our affections, because there's all kinds of things that I do to say, I I love her and I know because I know. But what we're really talking about is this knowing that is the way that when you see something as if, um, you know, forever ago, back when we met at Shoreline in the high school room, Boog did a series where he had a Rembrandt painting, and I think, if you remember correctly, I think it was The Calling of Matthew, or maybe it was The Boat on the Sea. I don't remember which one you used. But it was um, one of the many ways in which Rembrandt paintings are highlighting a knowledge of the character of Christ that isn't about the colors and physical properties of the paint, but about the intention of the artist. And you see something in a way that you look at the painting and go, ah. I see. And we use language of vision to talk about a knowing that has nothing to do with a rational assent, just that, but it has to do with a deeper knowing. Like, how it is do you know this? What do you know to be true has everything then to do with how it affects your posture of your heart and your affections. The impact that your knowledge has on how you feel matters. 
And good art makes you feel. It doesn't just make you smile in a sense of like, I appreciate the technicalities of that. But good, good art is the stuff you stand in front of and go, man, that makes me feel something. I, I'm moved in my affections. Because it's pointing to something so much greater than paint. Because it's just paint. But it's not about the paint. It's about the connection of my mind with the heart and mind and the intention of the artist that is highlighting a knowledge that is deep. And I go, oh, I see. I see now. And what Jesus is asking is saying, starting with the external form of worship, or a better way to say is, if you struggle in worship because we only spend half a percent of our waking hours in a form of corporate musical worship together, we find ourselves struggling to even define what worship may be or what it looks like in our lives, it probably should start with your knowing. I think of it like a process of education, understanding. Spirit and truth involve some truth. Understanding who God is leads to exaltation, U-L, exaltation, which is the idea of I am affected by this. It affects me. My understanding of who God is affects me in some way, which leads to exaltation. Something is done. I say, sing, move, be, exist in the world. It is totally connected to that. And it has to follow that trajectory. And so Jesus is saying, your, your knowledge of me should lead into being affected in the way that good art moves somebody that then leads into respond. Now be, go and exist. Jesus is taking us from a centralized, institutionalized, naturalized, ritualized worship and saying it is no longer a come and see. You no longer come and see God. He is saying go and be. That this is now a go and be process, not come and see. And he's telling us what it isn't. It isn't the process of ticking the box of a form. We just go through this motion of worship. And it has everything to do with how we've attended to our, our desire to place ourselves in the proximity of Jesus through people, through community, through the church, through beauty, through art, through music, in a way that we can encounter Jesus. Because our goal is not to rationally ascend to Jesus, but to encounter him in a way that leads our exaltation to exaltation. That we can now say, oh, I, I see now, and I move. Not everybody's wired this way, I understand. I'm, I'm wired in a way that I'm emotionally affected by beauty in ways that, that some of you are. Some of you are kind of ashamed of it. Kathy comes up to me sheepishly that she's in tears in worship, and there's nothing to be ashamed of on that. But she'll say, I got moved to tears in worship. And that happens for some of you, and some of you, that's not your wiring. I get it. Thankfully, this is only one half of 1% of your waking hours. And you have all this opportunity then to experience God and encounter him in ways that lead you to actual genuine worship. And that I don't fall into this big category that Jesus is talking about in Matthew, about this is what it isn't. It's not that. Scott Erickson has a painting that I was looking to find and I, I didn't want to just rip it off and pull it because I like giving artists credit, so I didn't put it on my slides. 
But I'll just describe it because it's simply a, a, a painting of a church falling through the sands of an hourglass and disintegrating into nothing. And he'd say, if you love the form, you have everything to lose. If you love what gives it its form, you are now free to move and exist and be in the world and encounter Jesus as he's meant to be encountered. So how is it that we can then align our hearts with Jesus to de-ritualize and de-institutionalize and denationalize and delocalize our idea of worship? Let's talk about it. Well, if worship that has existed in the Old Testament is all but void in the New Testament, what does it have to say about it? I'm going to end with this. Hebrews 13, 15 and 16, do we have that passage, Boog? I'm going to skip over the Romans one or maybe come back to that. Okay, I'll say it. I remember what I put into the slides. If our education, and I'm so sorry of the a kind of, I, I want it, I told the book, I want our education window of time at branches to be as low as possible. <laughs> the minimum required education that will lead us to exaltation. I just want that to be really low so that we can spend time in the exaltation phase where we are praising him in ways that our lives. But Paul does talk about worship in the New Testament. In Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, he uses this term, but he uses a different term for worship as an altogether new one. Because the previous two, two words, proskuneo, hishtanavaha, were not adequate. Because Jesus in the New Testament, there was all kinds of people who actually bowed down to him, who physically their posture moved, who came up to Jesus and had a postural expression of worship. And in the temple, it was localized. You had a movement that it was associated with it. Your body was moving in a form of worship. But now that doesn't do it. Because now Jesus encounters the bodily movement of the church in physical bowing, and he's like, that's not it. It can be that. It's just, it's, it's always more than that. It must be more than that. And how Paul connects this is saying, through him, then, in Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The Romans passage that we have up there on 12.1, he's saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You'll notice the shift that happens in the church, that your worship then does become about how you embody you being affected and encountering Jesus in the way you treat others. The one another's within the New Testament about loving one another, lifting up one another, sacrificing for one another, honoring one another. It's littered with it. How you show hospitality with one another, welcoming one another in Romans, having fellowship with one another in John, caring for one another in Corinthians, doing good to one another in Thessalonians, encouraging and building up one another in Romans. And outdoing in showing each other honor, as we see in all these letters to the churches, all of a sudden our worship gets moved way beyond just our musical expression and moved into how do you treat your fellow neighbor in Christ, brother and sister in Christ? How do you treat each other? Is your act of worship 
the exaltation of the education, and then it's led me to be affected by who God is that spills over into what we say and do, that then, it needs to translate in how we treat one another as our expression of worship. And now we're freed. We're freed so that I just don't have to fixate on this one half of 1% of my time that we do in corporate worship. It is an essential and vital part of the church, and we'll talk more about that in future Sundays, about musical worship, beauty, arts, the way that that place is there. But you're freed then from this narrow, small-minded focus of just like, I have to go through this outward form to be worshipful, and we're freed in Christ to say, you no longer have to go through this outward form. You are free to live and be worshipful in how you exist in the world. And the way that you do that is by being affected and moved by who God is and having that spill over into what you say and do. So my summary. The inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above anything. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving one another in Christ. Your service to one another is an essential ingredient to your worship that gets included in what we say and sing. So it's the tip of the iceberg. What we say and sing is literally the tip of the iceberg. And what's all underneath that is the ways in which our encountering Jesus allows us to spill over into the way we love one another and love in the world. And my hope is that if in the future someone asks, what percent of your waking hours do you spend in worship? That it is possible to say, well, if I believe what Jesus says to be true, isn't it 100? Isn't it possible for it to be 100? Paul's exhorting us when he says, in everything that you do, whether you eat or drink or sleep, kind of gives this laundry list, always giving thanksgiving, praising the Lord. He's talking directly to those who are, no, who are saying, well, what about the ritualistic process of worship of an external form? External form? He's like, Mm-mm. now you get to go and be. Your week this week can now be filled with ever-increasing opportunities to encounter the Lord through your spiritual disciplines that will move your heart to how you exist in the world so that you worship God from a place of knowing that goes far beyond what you've rationally ascended to, but what you know to be true because you've encountered him. And if you haven't encountered Jesus, put yourself in proximity to him through others and through these disciplines and just see what happens. Just see what happens. See what happens in prayer and in solitude and in worship and in singing. See what happens when we respond in worship, when we cross the line of intentionality to say, all right, well, I'm going to start singing. Let's see what happens. And embody your encounter in your posture, in your words, in your conversations, in your actions, and in your relationships. I invite the band to come on up while I pray. Heavenly Father, there's just too much here for me to feel like I even have a full grasp of what it is to, to be your image bearer to exist in the world as an ambassador and representative of you and that 
Um, I confess that there's so many times where I go through the motions. Ask forgiveness, Father, for the ways in which I worship in vain. I pray, Lord, for your movement of my heart, that what I know to be true of you now moves into a deeper knowledge of me exalting you in my affections and that you would give me the honor of partnering with you in moving and being in this world as a way of, of worship. As I care for others, as I sacrifice, as I love, that you're honored by all of that. And as we sing, Lord, this small one half of 1% of our waking hours, help us to not worship in vain, but to lean in. Come, Holy Spirit, to minister to our hearts to give us that knowledge and that knowing. We thank you for your presence. In the name of Jesus, amen.